Good morning. Happy Sabbath. You can thank me. I seem to have a knack for choosing songs that you don't know. Because uh, every time I send the selection to Norm, he's like, I don't think we know that one. I've almost gotten to the point where I'm like, Norm, you pick the songs. Here's the theme, and we'll go. But, but everybody did a wonderful job, and I apologize if I'm causing pain. But it's good to get out of our comfort zone, is it not? All right, so everybody knows, or everybody may not know, those of you that are guests, we're in doing a study on the book Christ Object Lessons. We're going through a chapter, chapter, chapter by chapter study of the book Christ Object Lessons. If you have not read the book, or even if you have, I urge you to read it again or get a copy. We have copies out at the resource desk. It's a tremendous, it's an easy read, small book, power packed with Mrs. White's interpretations and expansions on Christ's parables and his teaching in parables. Today's chapter, we're focusing on chapter 10, titled The Net. No, it's not the internet. Trust me. My sermon's titled, Getting Caught is Not Enough. But before we do any study, let's please pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this opportunity to come together and worship with you. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of your Savior and your Son and his lessons in these simple parables that expand so broad and so expansively the meanings of life and salvation and the promises that you have given us if we'll follow you faithfully. Lord, please send your Holy Spirit. Please speak to to these people and to myself through me. It's not my words, Lord. We need your your words. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So as I said, the book Christ's Object Lessons focuses on Christ's parables. So, just a quick review on what parables are. You've heard it probably subsequent lessons so far, but parables are simple life stories that illustrate broad, expansive spiritual spiritual ideas in simple manners that we can all understand. Christ understood that he couldn't lay before us his glory or his teachings in terms that he wanted to because we couldn't understand them. We're not capable of it. So he took us slowly through these lessons at a speed we could understand, but also an ability to share them with others, to expand them to subsequent generations and peoples. So, and like I I think I've said in previous sermons, he was able to say so much in so few words. And and you've heard him called the great teacher. I've called him the greatest speaker. And, And the parables are the perfect example of that. This parable is only five verses long. Five verses in the entire Bible. It's, it's, it's a sliver of the Bible. But the lesson is huge. It's expansive. And we're going to expand on that. As I said, this, this chapter focuses on the parable of the net. It's, one of, it's another one of the eight parables in chapter 18. I'm sorry, chapter 13 of Matthew. Let's turn there. Chapter 13, verse 47. We'll start in 47 and I'll read the whole parable. Like I said, it's very long, five whole chapters. Matthew 13, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. 
Then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So this parable, the audience is the apostles. Some of the previous parables, remember he was speaking to the multitudes. This was after he had sent the multitudes away. So now Jesus is speaking just to the apostles. He begins the parable with the word again. I don't know if you've noticed, but three parables in a row start with the word again. In verse 44, 45, and 47. Jesus uses the word again because he's reiterating, he's reinforcing. These are reinforcements of the previous parables. He's telling them in different terms so that some people may not have understood the term, the, the illusion of the previous parable, so he's taken a different setting or a different type of characters to teach the same lesson. Clearly, these were important lessons. If he chose to teach us these lessons in multiple manners, clearly Jesus wanted us to know these concepts. The parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, the hidden treasure, the pearl, they're all land-based parables. This parable is different. It's based in the sea. So what is the significance of a sea setting? Why did Jesus choose a sea setting in this one when he had used land-based parables leading up to this one? So in the spirit of letting Scripture interpret Scripture, let's go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. And next, let's turn to the book of Revelations, way to the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 17, verse 15. Revelation 17, verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. It's clear in Scripture, sea represents people. It represents all the people on the earth. Jesus used a fishing theme in this parable. Fishing was common in the Hebrew economy. In fact, fishing is common in the Sea of Galilee today. So Jesus used an activity that the people could relate to. Once again, just like I said in his other parables, he used the the agriculture themes. They could relate to that. They were farmers or they were fishermen. So there's three types of fishing that went on in the Sea of Galilee. In fact, they're still in use today. And most common, and we all can understand, hook and line fishing. They did hook and line fishing in in those days too. They also did small handheld nets. Some of us may think of them as Scenes, S-E-I-N-E-S. These are small, handheld nets that are thrown out. If you go out onto the piers, even here in Michigan, they're used to catch bait or small fish. These were, these were a little bit bigger than what you'll see used here, but they're, big, they're not too big for more than one person to use. They, one person would be able to throw these out. They'd go down to the bottom, and then they'd catch their catch. Let's turn to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. 
And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Casting a net into the sea. So we know they weren't hook and line fishing. They were casting a net. And there was only two of them. And that's going to be of significance here in a minute. Now let's turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 2 through 6. Luke 5, verse 2 through 6. And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. Once again, It was one person letting down a net. So it's these cast nets that we're talking about. Finally, let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Or, I'm sorry, chapter 21. John, chapter 21, verse 6 through 8. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it up. In because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put, out his outer, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the, little, came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. So these passages support that practice of that time of these smaller sized handheld nets that they were throwing out to catch fish. This parable doesn't talk about those two types of fishing. It talks about using a dragnet. It's the Greek word that translates to, into dragnet. It's only used once in the entire New Testament, this word and this concept, dragnet. Dragnet is a very long, tall net which has floats on the top and weights at the bottom. The weights at the bottom serve as sinkers, so they go down to the bottom and the net spreads out. So the, so the floats hold the top of the net at the top, Sinkers hold the bottom, so it basically covers the whole column of water. Similar in concept to what we would think of as a gillnet. That's more of a North American term. The dragnet was used in the Sea of Galilee during Jesus' time, so it was a concept that they were familiar with. The dragnet would be started from shore, and the boat would take it out into the sea, and then the fishermen would take the other... They would anchor it in, on one end of shore, then they would take the other end out into the sea, and then they'd go in a semicircle, bringing it all the way back to the, to the shore and another further down the shore, depending on how long the net was. So they took it out in a great big arc. The drag net was cast wide and deep, and then they would wait for a period of time, and then they would drag the net back to shore in a cone shape. It would be full of fish and other types of aquatic animals. It's all Thus the term dragnet. They would drag the whole net into shore with all the catch. So as Jesus told his, his disciples in Matthew 4.19, it's clear that why he used the fishing analogy. Remember he told them that he would make you all, I will make you all fishers of men. So as I established earlier, the sea represents all of humanity. The fish themselves represent individuals. The individual souls of men. In the hall, there's good and bad fish. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 14. 
The Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 9 and 10. This should be familiar. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. So the law laid down the differences between clean and unclean creatures in the, in the sea. Right? This is a concept that the people of that time and people now should be aware of, but they were much more aware of it at that time, obviously. So it was a concept that Jesus didn't have to establish. They understood clean and unclean. So he used the example of good and bad fish to teach that there are good people and bad people in the world. He equated the unclean and clean fish to good people and bad people. So as I continue on talking about the symbols used in the parable, like Jesus continued to use symbols that could be understood. He focused on teaching us spiritual elements of the kingdom of God, but he used real-life characters and activities that the that the people can understand. The dragnet was used to symbolize the kingdom of God. As described earlier, the method of fishing via dragnet is a large-scale industrial type of fishing. This is a huge operation. This isn't one guy out there throwing a hand net or with his fishing pole over the edge of the boat. This is a large-scale fishing operation used to probably feed entire villages or stock entire markets. Jesus chose this description, and only once, like I said in the New Testament. He chose that description because he wanted us to understand that the collection of these fish, people, would be all-encompassing. All people will be gathered, sorted, and they will be given their just reward. So Jesus was, was being clear. Everybody's going to be gathered into that net. On page 122 of Christ's Object Lesson, Mrs. White supports this. The casting of the net is the preaching of the gospel. This gathers both good and evil into the church. When the mission of the gospel is completed, the judgment will accomplish the work of separation. So the taking out of the net is the spreading of the gospel, our evangelism work. We're going to do that today. Hopefully all of you are going to do that today. So we're going to go out and spread the net. And then the net's going to be brought back in for harvest. And then a separation is going to occur is you're going to find the theme as I continue to go on in this lesson. Just getting caught in the net is enough. Everybody's going to get caught in the net. There's going to be a separation. The theme of this parable is the last judgment and the end of the age. That's the theme of this parable. The parable does not deal with the growing of good fish or bad fish. Jesus discusses that in other lessons. But this parable is strictly about the harvest the separation, the har- I'm sorry, the harvest, the judgment, which is the separation, and then the final disposition of the, of the fish. That's what this parable focuses on. Friends, the Bible is very clear. There will be an end. There will be a separation. Judgment will ultimately come. Scripture, scripture repeatedly tells us there will come a point when God will bring all things to an end. Throughout Scripture, he tells us that. It's a promise. Old Testament, New Testament, if, if a friend tells you they're a New Testament Christian, I can point to the end in the New Testament just as many times as I can in the Old Testament. Many people point to the long period of wait. Well, look, it's been 2,000 years. Exactly. But that's a blink to the Lord. 2,000 years seems like a long time to you and me, but it's not to the Lord. 
And in fact, the reason it seems like a long time to you or me illustrates his patience. He could have ended this immediately, right? But he wants no one to be lost. None of us to be lost. But he knows some will be lost. Let's go turn to the book, 1 Peter, chapter 4. As I talk about that end and the, and the sureness that the end is coming, let's, talk, let's turn to 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 7. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The Apostle Peter tells us, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. There's more than just the fact that the end is coming. Peter's telling us, be serious. Be watchful. In other words, don't be trivial. Don't be superficial. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just to the left, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. In case someone says, well, I don't, I don't follow Peter, I, I, I follow Paul. Well, okay, I follow Paul too. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. Jesus covers these same themes in the parables of the wheat and the tares, the goats and the sheep. All of these discuss the final judgment. They're all about the final judgment. He chose three different players or characters, the wheats and the tares, the sheeps and the goat, good fish and bad fish. Clearly, he wanted us to understand that judgment is imminent, and that it's important, and ultimately the consequences of that judgment. He put this in three different settings, so in case somebody said, well, I didn't understand the wheat and the tares. Okay, well, I got the sheep and the goat for you now. Well, I didn't understand those. Okay, let's try the good fish and the bad fish. So in this parable, the net is dragged through the sea of humanity, and the souls of men are brought to shore. As I mentioned, the net's going to catch the seas of humanity. Once this is done, the angels will go forth and bring the work of separation. The time of separation will be a time of great excitement for the followers of Christ. Amen? It'll be a time of great excitement. But, there's always a but, it will be a time of great terror for those who have rejected Christ. Let's turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verse 26. Luke chapter 21, verse 26. Men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then let's turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Revelation 6, verses 15 and 16. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This is not an exciting time for those folk, is it? Not a, doesn't sound pleasant to me. 
The Bible's clear. Those who choose not to follow him will experience a terrible end. Terrible end. The good fish will be put in vessels of water to be preserved alive, but the bad fish will be thrown away. They're put in the water to keep them alive. We're going to be kept alive if we're faithful to Christ. Not only kept alive, but live forever. Not just kept alive. Live forever. The wheat are separated from the tares, the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous, the just from the wicked. Those who have chosen the narrow road that leads to the life from those who have chosen the broad road that leads to destruction. Those who have chosen heaven from those who have chosen the fallen world. Those who have received grace from those who will receive judgment. The sons of God from the rebels. This is the great separation at the end of the age. At that point, the time for decisions is over. Friends, the choice to follow Christ and receive his gift of eternal life must be made in this life. You can't wait. It will be too late in the next life. Mrs. White supports this on page 123 of Christ's Object Lesson. Again, these parables teach that there, will, there is to be no probation after judgment. When the work of the gospel is completed, there immediately follows a separation between the good and the evil. And the destiny of each class is forever fixed. Friends, it's, it's imminent. We won't have time. Time is now. Jesus told this parable to teach his apostles and all of us that the kingdom of God includes a judgment for all people. Not just his followers. It includes a judgment for everyone. The emphasis of this parable is, and on, on, is, is, on, I'm sorry, is on the unbelievers of the church. It's focusing on um, not just the unbelievers out in the world, but specifically on the unbelievers in the church. The reformer John Calvin told us, Christ informs us that a mixture of the good and the bad must be patiently endured till the end of the world. Because till that time, a true and perfect restoration of the church will not take place. Again, he warns us that it is not enough, and what is more, that it is of little consequences to us to be gathered into the fold unless we are his true and chosen sheep. And that disciples might communicate to others what they had received. In this way, Christ wets and excites their minds more and more to desire instruction. Powerful words. It's not enough just to come. It's not enough just to read. Just attending church is not enough. We must love Jesus with all of our hearts and serve him unconditionally. We must turn over our hearts to him 100%. Not, I'm sitting in the pews and I'm good to go. No. In fact, I urge you, you're in so much falsehood at that point that you're facing destruction. The parable also focuses on judgment of the church. The Bible, of, I'm sorry, the parables in the Bible of the net, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, they all describe the kingdom of God. In particular, though, Christ's church. They are focused on the last judgment day for the church. To understand these parables, though, we must know the prerequisite for salvation is that, is, is that salvation is one's soul. Turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Jesus assumed that we knew the prerequisite to salvation. John, chapter 6, verse 28 and 29. Then he said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him him whom he sent. 
Believe in him. Love him. Be faithful to him and obey him. 2,000 years have passed since Christ's church was formed, but many within the church are not saved. Many have deluded themselves and claim to be saved. But there have been no core changes in their life, no transformation of character. They came in, they signed the books, they sat down, but they didn't turn their hearts over to Christ. Many of these people have learned a few things, did some nice things in the church, but, they, but never with the proper motives. They worked for the sake of keeping score or for the sake of appearances. How do I look to my brothers and sisters? How do I feel about it myself? Christ will reveal those who did works for improper reasons at that time of separation. They may have placed money in the offering plate. They may have taught a Sabbath school class. Watch babies in the nurseries. Like, oh, okay, Dan's really stepping on some toes now. Sang in the choir. But they did it for themselves. It's not what they did, it's why they did it. It's not actions. It's not works. It's motive. It's heart. Why are you doing it? They did the service to make themselves look better to others or to feel better about themselves. In Manuscript Release 19, page 176, Mrs. White brings this point home. Those who have had opportunities to hear and receive the truth and who have united with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, calling themselves the commandment-keeping people of God, and yet possess no more vitality and consecration to God than do the nominal churches, will receive the plagues of God just as verily as the churches who oppose the law of God. Friends, if I stepped on your toes, think about Mrs. White. She just called out our whole church. Amen? And rightfully so. Not because she was picking on anybody, because she didn't want to see you lost. It was a call to repentance, a call to change your life, to transform your character. Those folks are rotten fish. They're rebellious goats. They were going through the motions, acting like Christians. They weren't Christians. They were acting like Christians for the sake of acting like Christians. These people will ultimately be exposed by Christ and eternally burned in outer darkness. As the Apostle James told us in James 2, 14-17, the great faith, faith and works, self-professed faith and church attendance without righteous deeds and humble service is a lie. So the parable that Jesus shows us reveals only two end results. There's just two results. There's no middle ground. There's no, well, maybe I'll do a little bit of this. And maybe. No. There's two results. Jesus tells us the wicked will be cast in the furnace of fire. Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation, chapter 20, verse 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Many Christians today think that Jesus just talked about the good stuff, the warm and fuzzies. And he did talk about those. How many people have you heard say, I just want to hear Jesus preach? How many times have you heard that? Well, I do too. 
Friends, Jesus talked about sin and final judgment just as often as he talked about salvation and the promises. Because you can't have one without the other. There's only two results. Reward or punishment. There should be no confusion. Those who refuse to follow Jesus will be cast in the lake of fire. The Bible's clear. Jesus was clear. This is out of his own words. This wasn't interpretation. This wasn't future speakers. This was Jesus himself. Six times in Matthew, Jesus describes the place where the wicked go by saying there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Six times he used that description. Again, Jesus was not one to repeat himself unless he really wanted us to get that point driven home. This is not a soft description of this place. It's, not, it's a place where there's overwhelming despair, regret, grief, sorrow, and ultimately pain. The parables of the net, the parables of the sheep and goats, the wheat and the tares, should terrify the average cool churchgoer. If what Jesus teaches in this parable has you feeling, or I'm sorry, has you fearing the sea of fire, there's hope. There's still hope. First of all, admit you're a sinner. Turn yourself entirely over to Christ. Give yourself wholly to him. Repent. Hold nothing back. Commit to studying the scriptures in order to change your prideful, selfish life into a life that's full of good. God-honoring service to your neighbors. Learn from Jesus' teaching that we must love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Accept Christ's transformative power. Change your character. You can't do it alone. And those that think they can do it alone are the ones that are here struggling. Friends, I've been there. I can do a lot. But I wasn't able to do that. It took me coming to the Word. It's a free gift available to everyone. It doesn't cost you anything, but it costs you everything. Learn from his teachings. This path will lead to the other glorious end result. You heard the the one result, see a fire, destruction, the end. But with that comes the other result. The good fish are first separated from the bad. Jesus will come and take the good fish, preserve them in water, keep them alive. These are the people that are fit for the master's use. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And then just go to the right a little bit to verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestines, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This is what happens to those that choose Christ's path. You may look like an ordinary person today, but if you're a follower of Christ, you'll be anything but ordinary in the next life. You'll be extraordinary. You'll be special. You'll be a son of God. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 through 5. 
Revelation 21, 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, but the, for, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This passage tells us there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. And all the old things will have passed away. What a tremendous promise. Again, free for the taking. Scripture also tells us we'll receive a new body. We will be strong and powerful, vital, healthy, vibrant. But ultimately, and the greatest gift, is we will rule and reign with Christ on his throne. Think of that. What a promise. Friend, Christ is clear. Getting caught by the net alone is not enough. Everybody's going to get caught by the net. Bad fish will also be caught up in the net. We must follow Christ faithfully to ensure we are put in the vessels of water for preservation. Just getting caught in the net is not enough. Friends, the parable of the net is clear, just as the other parables are all clear, and we've studied them. The end of the age is coming, and the kingdom of God will bring a final judgment for all people. We are in a period of probationary time where God is begging and pleading with us to repent and follow him. He's pleading. God, the ruler of the world, is begging us. How humbling is that? Friends, it's staggering. He doesn't need to plead with anybody. He is the ruler of the world. He created everything. We should be begging him. He's begging us to come. As Mrs. White told us, throughout the period of probationary time, his spirit is entreating men to accept the gift of life. It is only those who reject his pleading that will be left to perish. God has declared that sin must be destroyed as an evil ruinous to the universe. Those who cling to sin will perish in its destruction. We must all examine our walks, but more specifically, our motives our intentions, the reasons why we do what we do, not just what we do. In fact, if you examine what you do, you're going to fall short. It's not about works. Our outward activities mean nothing unless our inner characters reflect a true love of Christ. Our inner characters, because he knows us inside and out. Only God knows our hearts. Just as God's heart aches for none to perish, so must your heart ache for that and mine. We must ache for our fallen friends and beg them to come back. Bring them the truth. Friends, in closing, I'll leave you with Christ's great promise and warning. Again, the good and the bad, not just the fuzzy stuff, but a great promise and a warning in Revelation 22. And behold, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. Friends, what a promise. What about those that didn't 
accept that. They're not coming to the gates of the city, are they? They're going to the lake. We want no one to go to the lake. God wants no one to go to the lake. Please search your hearts. If you have anything between you and Christ today, take your heart to Christ, give it all to him, and start anew. Please join me in singing to him 212. It is almost time for the Lord to come.